Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. The internet is filled with different podcasts and many varied shows. There are shows that really are for drifters, dreamers, and derelicts. And yes, there are plenty of shows for clowns and creeps and crooks and cranks, but this is not one of them. This is the show where we speak about the things that really matter in your life. This is a show for happy warriors. That's right. Every happy warrior is welcome in this show. And you may be raising children. Well, think of it as raising happy warriors in training. And you know how so many of you have written, maybe even you, so many have written to me to say, I wish I knew when I was 16 what I now know and understand. Right? Some of you have written that to me, many of you. Some of you are feeling it, and many of you are thinking it. That's right. What a difference my life would have made had I known when I was 16 the things I know now. Well, your job, if you are a parent, no matter how old your child is, or young, your job is to make sure that you save your child from ever having to have that feeling. You want to save your child from ever saying, oh, why did I only discover how the world really works when I'm too old to use it? Well, you're never really too old to use it, but let's all agree that had we properly employed our years between 13 and 23, uh, our lives would have been better. And that's true for nearly all of us. Probably are a few exceptions. Never met one, but there probably are. And so, as a parent, your job is not to stop your children from whining, it's not to keep them constantly content, and it's not to keep them constantly stimulated with an endless flow of entertaining conversation or available electronics and gadgets and, uh, and devices. No. Your job as a parent is to make sure that your children, as quickly as possible, Learn how the world really works so they do not have the regrets that so many in our generation have, which is, I wish I knew what I know now back when I was put in whatever age you want. And so that's who a happy warrior is. A happy warrior is somebody who, as a parent, is raising happy warriors. And a happy warrior is somebody who deliberately forms friendships and carefully nurtures them. A happy warrior, if, if you are a happy warrior then, you never dismiss the importance of finance by telling yourself and other people, oh, not everything is about money, you know. Of course it isn't. But much more is about money than most people suspect. As a happy warrior, you are devoted to your family, even if there are times that some of them infuriate you. You don't neglect caring for your body by avoiding indulgence and choosing challenge. That's what you do as a happy warrior. You try to make yourself more in touch with faith today than you were yesterday. After all, we are constantly moving. We are not clinging to a rung on the ladder or a ledge on the mountain. A happy warrior is constantly climbing upwards, never in the same place tomorrow as you were yesterday. The activity you engage in today 
is what makes tomorrow different from yesterday. Onwards and upwards is the credo of the happy warrior. Happy warriors are active, not passive. We happy warriors never say, oh, a decision will have to be reached. We proclaim, I will make a decision by 11 o'clock this morning. Happy warriors, above all, are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. Uh, you know, happy warriors, uh, I'd like to give you another example of something that enhances your life in the area of fitness. The F having to do with fitness and physical health, um, which is also at the same time related to faith. And what I'm talking about is the area of eating. Now, uh, for those of you who are biblically literate, you might be aware that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord says to Adam, of all the trees of the garden, achol tochel, that's what the Hebrew says. The English usually says, you may surely eat. However, the Hebrew itself is a little bit different. And I explain this very, very fully in our online program called Scrolling Through Scripture, wherein I show that uh, there is no poetic redundancy in Scripture. And so although the Hebrew repeats the word eat twice, it does not mean, oh, you may surely eat, which is just a poetic construction superimposed upon a translation that is challenging. An accurate translation of Genesis chapter 2 verse 16 would be, and the Lord said to Adam, um, you must eat, you must eat. <laughs> That's right. It's actually in the imperative form and it's repeated twice. What on earth could that possibly mean? And, uh, you know, gosh, this is such an important thing to understand. I think that um, uh, some people, unfortunately, have had experience, sometimes with family members, uh, of eating disorders, usually afflicting younger women. And uh, what happens there is that uh, a, uh, a person feels that uh, she's eating too much and she doesn't want to eat anymore and she loses weight, uh, and, and it, it reaches an unhealthy state. What, what's going on there? Well, when you want to cure an eating disorder, do you go to a nutritionist or do you go to a psychiatrist? And the answer is the latter, because everybody understands that there's a connect, connection between body and soul, a hugely important connection between body and soul, and eating satisfies both the body and the soul. That's why there are many people who have what they call their favorite comfort foods. When they're unhappy or miserable or stressed, there are certain foods they like going to, right? And that's because there is a connection. Eating is not only about nutrition. Eating satisfies not only the, the body's uh, physical requirements, but eating actually also satisfies the body's spiritual requirements. That's one of the reasons that with a newborn baby, what goes on when that baby is being nursed is not just the injection of nurturing mother's milk into this new bundle of protoplasm. No, what's happening is a profound bonding experience is taking place at exactly the same time. And so eating has a spiritual dimension as much as a physical dimension. Now, uh, what happens with overeating? In general, the usual explanation and reason for overeating is that you are not deriving the spiritual satisfaction, which would very quickly reach the point at which the spigot gets turned off. In other words, the point at which an eater says, I've had enough, I'm full, is not just a case of how much food is in your stomach, but it's also a case of how much spiritual nourishment you've absorbed as well. Because 
nine times out of ten, at least, it is your soul that says, I've had enough, before your body does. And so when your soul says, I've had enough, then your body goes along with it. And you say, okay, great, time to stop eating. But the reason so many of us eat more than we should is because we have uh, disconnected from the spiritual energy line. And the result is we're eating and eating and eating, trying to reach a state of satisfaction. But the trouble is that satisfaction is only reached when spiritual satiation takes place. If you are disconnected from the spiritual angle, then you keep on eating physically in the hope that at some point your physical body will say enough, but your physical body seldom does. And obesity becomes um, an increasingly prevalent problem. But if your spiritual connectivity is in shape, why then everything's different. And you find that far smaller portions of food are deeply satisfying. I explain much more of this in scrolling through scripture. Uh, The link should be in the description below. And uh, you will, I think, find that extremely helpful because faith and and, uh, fitness really do go together here. And uh, if if there's one prevalent problem in America today, uh, overeating would be it. Obesity is a very, very prevalent problem. And it's very hard to stop eating. No, it isn't. Not if you are eating, eating. And that's why the word eating shows up as an imperative, not once but twice in Genesis 2 verse 16. God is saying very clearly, from all the trees of the God, you may eat, you must eat physically, for physical nourishment, and you must also eat spiritually for spiritual nourishment. And when you do that, right, in the same way that a a newborn bonds to its mother through the action of eating, we bond to our Father in heaven through the act of eating as long as we are doing so from a spiritual angle as well as from a physical. More of that in scrolling through Scripture, but I wanted you to at least just get the, the concept there in the hope that that might help you in whatever struggles you might possibly be having in this area. Hopefully you don't at all. Now, as most of you know, I go to great lengths to make sure that all the shows in this series, on this podcast, are shows that can bring you real-life benefit. They're shows in which I speak about the things that you really care about. And for that reason, I seldom tell you what the date is of the taping unless I happen to be referring to some a contemporary event or perhaps to some historic event. And so ordinarily, uh, the shows are what I call evergreen. You can listen to them next week or next month or next year, and uh, you will still get the same benefit as you would if you listen to them the day I record them. Uh, they come out every week, and uh, each one is fresh and ever relevant. But today, I am going to tell you that I am taping it on the 77th anniversary of the day on which the United States Marines raised the flag on Mount Tsuburachi in on Iwo Jima Island in the middle of the Pacific. That happened on the 23rd of February, 1945. <laughs> Well, I am recording this particular show on the 77th anniversary of when the United States Marines raised the United States flag on top of Mount Suribachi during the Battle of Iwo Jima. And that took place on the 23rd of February, 1945. Um, why, why was that necessary? Why was that incredibly costly amphibious assault onto the beaches of Iwo Jima that resulted in huge numbers of casualties because the Japanese fought to the very last man? There were no surrenderings going on there at all, in spite of the fact that their fate was completely hopeless. But 
Uh, it's a different culture. It was a different culture, and that was how they fought. And every yard had to be struggled for. Mount Suribachi is not high, but I mean the whole thing is a sort of Pacific atoll. Uh, it's about 500 feet high. I think it's volcanic. It used to be volcanic, and um, the uh, Japanese had honeycombed it with with caves and and tunnels, and it was very very difficult. And in order to raise morale, a, a, a group of Marines took an American flag and went all the way to the top. They found some old plumbing pipe that the Japanese had been using to bring water down the mountainside. And um, they used that as a flagpole. And the iconic picture, uh, which has become a monument that you can, see, that you can even uh, see next time you visit Washington, D.C., and it's, uh, it's all really rather remarkable. Um, why was it necessary to, uh, for us to attack Iwo Jima? Um, I say us. I, I, I wasn't born and I, I certainly wasn't an American at that point. But uh, why did the United States have to attack Iwo Jima, even though it was so heavily defended? And, well, the fact that it was so heavily defended gives you a clue it uh, was very important to the Japanese. Uh, the United States had main air bases in uh, Guam and Saipan, Mariana Islands, and those were going to be uh, the bases from which B-29 bombing runs uh, to Tokyo were taking place. We're talking about early 1945. As you know, the atomic bombs ended Japan in August of that year, but before that point, uh, military planners did not yet know that they were going to use the atomic bomb, and all the planning revolved around a land-borne invasion of the Japanese islands, which everybody knew, given the Japan propensity that they saw on Iwo Jima of not surrendering, uh, they estimated that it could run to about a million American casualties, but there was no alternative. In the final analysis, I don't think there has ever been, in the history of warfare on this planet, I don't think there's ever been a situation where a war has been decisively won and the issue settled without putting boots on the ground, as they say. In other words, you can certainly use air power to soften up the, uh, the, the, the target. But in the final analysis, you're going to have to invade. You're going to have to go in and get it. So uh, the idea was that the B-29 bombing runs were being disrupted by a huge fleet of Japanese fighters based on the island of Iwo Jima. Where's Iwo Jima, you might ask? Well, uh, I am your rabbi. That's what I'm here for, right? Uh, if you drew a horizontal line of latitude directly out from Taiwan, eastwards, into the Pacific Ocean, and then you uh, dropped a vertical line, a line of longitude, down from Tokyo, vertically down, uh, where those two lines cross would be pretty much where Iwo Jima is located in the Pacific. Uh, so, you know, strategically located. And then Guam and uh, Saipan, uh, south of that. So for American bombers to get from Guam and Saipan to Tokyo, which was what was needed, they had to fly literally over Iwo Jima, which made them ready targets for the fighters, Japanese fighters, based on Iwo Jima. So Iwo Jima had to fall. It had to be taken by American forces. It was an incredibly difficult fight. The U.S. Marines came through with splendor and, and great valor and huge casualties. And uh, the raising of that flag has become iconic. And that happened 77 years ago today. Uh, you might say a glorious moment in American warfare, uh, a time when America still followed President Teddy Roosevelt's admonition from 1901, where he said that America should always talk softly but carry a big stick. Um, it's also the day on which uh, we can anticipate the, uh, the Russian 
land invasion of Ukraine. That's, that's certainly coming. But you knew that, right? Because I told you that uh, in my New Year's prediction show of a couple of months ago. And so I said we'd be seeing that happening. And again, uh, as I said, a land invasion is always necessary. If you actually want to do anything militarily, you absolutely have to go in. Uh, that is something that uh, America discovered with, with Iraq, discovered with uh, Afghanistan, obviously, and uh, it, it, it's something that obviously um, Mr. Putin of Russia knows, that if he wants to bring uh, Ukraine back under the Russian umbrella, uh, he is going to have to have boots on the ground. So at some point or another, it is going to actually take place sooner rather than later because you can't keep your armed forces on uh, urgent and ready standby indefinitely, and they've been that way for a little while. I don't know exactly how long, but I think uh, weeks rather than days. And so clearly uh, the timing is, is becoming quite imminent, and uh, this is going to be done. Today, America, unfortunately, um, carries, well, shall we say, talks very loudly and carries no stick at all. That's the sad reality. I've explained uh, on the show earlier what's going on in this sense, and it's very simple. Just ask yourself, if you are President Biden or you are one of the ambitious staffers that have a wonderful life working for him in the White House, do you want to talk about inflation, crime, the unrestrained southern border with uh, people of unknown condition pouring in? Um, do you want to speak about any of these things? Do you want to speak about COVID? Do you want to speak about uh, the regulations and the oppressive regulatory regime? Do you want to talk about uh, our northern neighbor, what's been going on in Canada under that um, uh, non-serious, you know, the, with me the opposite of serious is silly, so I'll say the silly Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, if you're working in the White House, do you want to talk about these things? Or would you rather say, we are going to bring the wrath of the, the family of nations down on Russia. We're not going to tolerate this. Uh, this is the first violation of borders and the first act of war since uh, the end of World War II. That's, of course, not counting uh, Bill Clinton's bombing of Belgrade which he did for exactly the same reason that President Biden is obsessing over Russia and the Ukraine, uh, because that was a time when America was very focused on Monica Lewinsky and the impeachment hearings. And so uh, you, you do something dramatic in order to get the, the foolish media off the topic that makes you feel uncomfortable and onto the things that you'd much rather have them talk about. And that's what's going on. Obviously, if America was serious, if America really did speak softly and carried a big stick, um, then it would have been very different. Uh, Mr. Putin would not have invaded, uh, would not invade Af Afghanistan very, very clearly. But um, the, the, the reality is that military power I think it's a function of capability and willpower. In other words, if you've got a lot of uh, capability, you've got a, a, a developed military with the right equipment and the right training, and you also have the steel will that you know we haven't seen in American leadership for many, many years, um, if well, I, I think President Trump probably did, but I won't. I won't stop in on that right now. But um, if you have that, if you have, and America certainly used to. I mean, under President Eisenhower, under President Kennedy, America had great military capability and a very strong will. And for that reason, uh, Mr. Khrushchev backed down on Cuba. 
But um, think about how multiplication works. When I say a function, when I say military ability uh, and, and a country's military readiness is a function of capability and willpower, uh, what it means is you have to multiply the capability by the willpower. Now, admittedly, you know, we don't easily have the units of capability, we don't have easy units, certainly, of willpower, but you can do it conceptually. And here's the thing about multiplication. When you multiply anything by zero, the answer is zero. So 500 times zero is zero. 27 times zero is zero. 17,450,000 times zero is zero. So if will is perceived by other people as zero, which it is, uh, certainly since Afghanistan's uh, shameful uh, abandonment, um, but probably before that as well, I think people were reading President Biden very accurately. And so since it's obvious that America's will is zero, and, and by the way, um, uh, John Kerry, in the Biden administration, he used to be a vice president, he's, uh, he's now Secretary of State. Uh, John Kerry um, is now saying that uh, the main danger with the war in Ukraine is it will distract people's attention from the urgency of climate change. <laughs> and so, really, how, you know, how seriously do you think anybody takes the United States of America at the moment. And this is sad. This is a country I immigrated to with excitement and pride. And, uh, and this is where we are today. It's, uh, it's, it's a tragic reality. And so, uh, uh, obviously, no, no matter what the American military capability is, and we let us say that other countries' uh, intelligence services may not have an accurate picture. Uh, they certainly know that we abandoned equipment enough to, uh, to arm a middle-sized nation back in Afghanistan, abandoned and left to our enemies. They certainly know that, and they, they certainly know that the American military seems to have been more obsessed with equity uh, di diversity and inclusion than they are with military readiness. They, they know all of that, but none of that matters because they rightly estimate the willpower to fight in America at about zero. And therefore, it just doesn't matter what the military capability is because multiplied by zero, well, it's going to be zero. And so um, uh, Mr. Putin knew f and understands full well that there is absolutely no possibility whatsoever that America actually means to do anything about the invasion of Afghanistan. And so, uh, obviously, it is the time for him to act and take care of this, and it'll be on the front pages for a few days, and then things will settle down as normal. Um, you know, uh, look, um, the... Uh, the, the provocation, you should know that there is no legally binding treaty between America and the Ukraine. There isn't such a thing. Ukraine is not a part of NATO. Um, one of the things that is binding is an agreement back in 1991 uh, with Russia that Ukraine would not be made a part of NATO. And now, Mr. Putin has been hearing for months and months and months already the talk that Ukraine is going to be invited into NATO. Uh, obviously, I mean, I understand this is a problem for him. And uh, I don't want to draw parallels, you know, what would happen if, let us say, let's say America uh, decided that the return of Panama, the country, to the country of Panama, uh, and the return of the, the giving of the canal to Panama under President Jimmy Carter. We've had quite a few <laughs> really bad presidents in uh, the, the, these years, right? I mean, Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama and now uh, uh, Joe Biden. Uh, this is, is really not very good. And, and by the way, uh, I'm, I've got to say that George W. Bush, um, you know, wasting a huge amount of money, um, 
dis doing that war not in order to conquer terrorist bases, but in order to bring democracy to the Middle East. These are, are bad, bad ideas, and they were bad ideas then as well. But um, the, the, the point, however, remains that if America today were to say, you know, um, it's, you know Panama is out of control and they're blocking uh, ships going through the Panama Canal, America, America says, you know what, we have to retake control of the canal. It used to be ours. We built it, we retained control, we magnanimously gave it to Panama, which and it's become Panama's main source of revenue, uh, but we have to go back and get it. Let's imagine we did that, and uh, uh, Mr. Putin and Russia said, oh, no, you don't. Uh, you're not going to do that. We're going to do all kinds of things to stop you. Do how, would, how would America feel about that? They'd say, stay out of our business, nothing to do with you. And I can't help thinking that that's how many Russian people see it as well. Um, Ukraine was part of, a Rush, part of Russia for a very long time. There's been uh, turbulence over the last 30 years. And, uh, and for whatever reason, maybe it's just to ensure access to, to uh, proper access to the Crimea, proper access to uh, seaports, you know, who knows? But for whatever reason, the, uh, the, the head of the government of Russia has decided to reabsorb Ukraine into uh, his country. It's very hard to see why this should be America's problem, particularly since the uh, administration plans on blaming further deprivations of America on this event instead of upon their own mishandling of things. So rising fuel prices, be ready to see this, by the way. You're going to hear about it all the time. Rising uh, prices for fuel, yeah, you know, because of Russia and the Ukraine. Nothing to do with uh, cancelling the, uh, the pipeline on the first day of his administration almost. No. Uh, you're going to hear about... Uh, Supply chain problems, that's because of Russia and Ukraine. You're going to hear about inflation, that's because of Russia and Ukraine. This is, this is really a, a very natural and obvious strategy for the American White House and the administration at the present time. And this is what you're going to be hearing. Every single problem now is going to be because of Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, I really think that uh, Pre President Biden goes to sleep smiling every night. This could not have worked out better, and he certainly did everything in his power. I mean, this is the country that uh, was paying his family more than a million dollars a year, more than through his son. Uh, this is a, a country that uh, has been corrupt since, since it emerged as a country after 1989, and, uh, and Russia's now going to absorb it. I, you know, I, I'm not even sure, do I think it's good? Do I, think, I don't even waste a minute thinking about that because it's none of my business. It's truly none of my business. I, am, I wish the American administration would be as concerned about the territorial integrity of the United States as they seem to be about the territorial integrity of a little country on another continent that most people never even heard about till recently. So um, all I'm saying is that from now on, whenever you hear the United States government talking about Russia and Ukraine, it's because they don't want you to think or talk about uh, uncontrolled immigration, a porous southern border. They don't want you to talk about inflation. They don't want you to talk about crime, the, the mushrooming crime statistics. Uh, people becoming more and more fearful in more and more American cities. No, it's always going to be about Russia and Ukraine. That's what's going to be causing the problem. And if we can count on that other silly person, John Kerry, well, it'll also turn out to be the cause for global warming and climate change and the melting of the icebergs and the distress of the polar bears. All of that um, coming from this. It's, it's really quite wonderful from there point of view. Many of you have asked me about uh, uh, obtaining uh, some of the weekly emails that I put out. Um, the easiest way to do that is make a note of this website, 
whwmail.com. Not mailman. Mail as in email. So uh, the letters are WHW, stands for We Happy Warriors, WHWmail, M-A-I-L.com. And if you go to whwmail.com, you'll have an easy opportunity, should you wish to, uh, to subscribe so as you will receive uh, Susan's musings, that's my wife's weekly commentary, and she's much uh, more audacious than I am. She's much less diplomatic than I am. Uh, she says exactly what she thinks, and, um, and that's a wonderful thing. So she writes a weekly column. I do the weekly thought tools. We also, uh, of the many, many questions that people send in to us, we pick one every week to answer, with the permission of the person who sends it in, to answer publicly. And so that's an Ask the Rabbi. Anyway, all of these things are detailed out on the website whwmail.com. Uh, right? And I, WHW stands for We Happy Warriors because, as you all know, we have a website, wehappywarriors.com, and the idea is to provide community. Look, when I speak about the challenges of being a, a happy warrior, I'm pretty serious about it. I know it's difficult. I know that many of the people around you are not properly raising their children. I know that many people around you are not properly devoted to their finances. I know that many people around you dismiss family as unimportant. And so being a happy warrior means being like a salmon, that magnificent fish that swims upstream. That's right. A wee, uh, being a happy warrior means that you are not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life, and it means you are swimming upstream. And when you swim swimming upstream, it is enormously valuable to feel that you have friends, that you are part of a community doing the same thing. And to be a lonely happy warrior is truly difficult. And I know there are some of you who are in that situation for no fault of your own. But the very least that you can do is connect up with the other happy warriors that even now at this very moment are listening to these words just as you are. And so uh, you can get connected with that community by simply subscribing to any of these things you'd like to know about. And uh, you'll be able to look at them and make up your mind at the website whwmail.com. whwmail.com. And uh, that way we will connect. And the more happy warriors there are there, the more encouraged I am and the more certain I am that eventually civilization will triumph. So uh, what to do if you happen to live somewhere, as I do, where the government of the country in which you live is behaving in a silly fashion instead of in a serious fashion? And the answer is uh, the same as the answer always is that you hear from me, and that is focus on your five Fs. Because if your family is in good shape, and your finances is in good shape, and you have a community of friends, your friendships are good, and your health is under control, and you've got faith, so as that you at least understand the long-term role that spiritual values play in this. And I, I gave you uh, a very strong indication from World War II and Adolf Hitler uh, how this works last week, in last week's show. But uh, no matter what is going on, if those five Fs of yours are in good shape, you have an enormous amount to be grateful for. And you can also withstand a considerable degree of national mishandling. Not everything, uh, you know, as unfortunately is certainly true for, um, shall we say, people who lived in Warsaw 
in August 1939, there were certainly people in Warsaw whose 5Fs were in good shape, and all of a sudden the beginning of September arrives and uh, Germany invades Poland, and um, things were very, very bad. Now, I would say this, that if your 5Fs are in shape, and this I know was true for many Jews in Warsaw, Poland in 1938 and then in the first half of 1939, and that is that those who had faith well organized, in other words, faith was a part of their lives, many of those, not by any means all, but many of them, by virtue of the uh, advanced vision that faith can give you, left Poland in time. And um, to be sure, many of the Jews living in America today or descended in, uh, descended in, in America today from Jews who were of Polish origin were these Jews who left Poland before World War II. And that's a really important thing to understand, that of the five Fs, the one that gives you the best insight into the future is faith. The F of faith is what enables you to more accurately anticipate what lies ahead. And that's why you'll find me every now and then emphasizing faith because there are so many happy warriors who have said to me, you know, you're absolutely right. I, I've got to focus more on family. You're right. I've got to focus on raising my children properly. I've got to focus on rebuilding connections with my siblings. And all of these things are, are, are true. People say, yes, I'm in the finances. I've been neglecting finances. You know, I've been doing what I enjoy doing instead of what I should be doing, etc., etc. And uh, But what I don't get is the role of faith. And so please understand that... Uh, it's not, I'm not trying to in any way make you religious or, 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 or turn you into anything you're not. Uh, I am merely trying to expose you to part of how the world really works that is a legitimate part of your legacy and of which you have tragically been deprived. And I'm, I'm talking in those words, I'm talking specifically to those many listeners uh, who are uncomfortable with faith, uh, those of you who feel awkward talking to God, those of you who feel uh, uncomfortable even contemplating the existence of God. What is, do you mean God's actually watching me like all the time? <laughs> I, I get it. I mean, I understand. This is very, very sophisticated thinking. It's very advanced, and um, not everybody has it. And, um, and what I'm encouraging is that you acquire it. In the same way, not everybody knows how to read financial statements. Not everyone even knows what financial statements to read regularly. But you can learn, and you should learn. And so it is that not everybody uh, has a relationship with God. Not everybody knows how to. Not everybody is even comfortable contemplating a relationship with a being whose very existence they're not sure about. I get all that. But um, it is kind of a necessary part of a complete life, and particularly in the area of knowing when it might be Warsaw, August 1939, in whatever town you live and whenever you happen to be listening to these words. Uh, because in an uncertain world, yes, there are definitely times where it might become the wise thing to do to really pick yourself up and make a major uh, relocation. It is possible. Maybe it requires a major relocation in, uh, in activity in your financial arena. Maybe it's a major relocation geographically. But big changes are uncomfortable and most of us tend to put them off. The important thing is to be able to know when you are being uh, distracted by the appeal of a fresh start 
even though you should not be doing that, you should be pushing ahead and staying focused on what you're doing. Or alternatively, maybe it's one of those situations. Maybe it is Warsaw, August 1939, and life is about to change in absolutely unimaginable ways. The F of faith is going to be most helpful to you in being able to ascertain what is needed and when. Now, I want to introduce you to something else that is a very disturbing thought. And so I'm going to say at the outset that, again, please know at no point am I ever trying to sell you an idea or persuade you of something. I'm not trying to do that. A rabbi's job is to make accessible the information on how the world really works. And what you do with it is entirely up to you. There are those who use it wisely. There are those who ignore it. There are those who allow it to make them angry. And then they calm down, and then they use it wisely. I mean, I, I, I really enjoy watching when that happens and knowing about it. Um, and then there are people who just reject it, and then there are people... All right, that's all I'm doing. So I'm going to tell you something now, which, uh, depending on your own life circumstances and your own life experiences might make you angry, in which case you've got my apology. I certainly do not want to make you angry, um, but I, I do have to tell you the truth. I might find that uh, what I'm about to tell you makes you very sad and unhappy, and you again have my apology for that, because I want you to be happy. I want you to make the decision to be happy all the time. I want you to accept into your heart and soul the fundamental principle that happiness is your moral obligation. But in spite of that, it is possible that what I'm about to say is going to cause you unhappiness or anger. Not my intention for that to happen, and uh, if it happens, it's because you allowed it to happen. Let's be honest about that. Um, I would agree that I provoked, but without intention. In other words, um, for you to be offended at what I'm about to say is your choice. It's very important. People often would say to me, um, what you're saying offends me. All right, that, that was your choice. You could have heard it and ignored it. You could have heard it and rejected it. Offended, to be offended is an emotional reaction. And I understand we're human beings and we have emotions. We sometimes have emotional reactions. I get that. But it's your decision always. Now, that uh, whole lengthy preamble uh, was, uh, was really interesting in the way of a caveat to, to let you know I am going to be talking about something that is very sensitive for many people. Uh, that's not a warning that I think you should turn off. I really don't. I think you should hear it because I'm going to be telling you something true, although I recognize it will arouse cognitive dissonance in some of you for, for good reason, maybe because of family background or, or experience or life history. But here it is anyways. I'll be talking about it some more in the future, but this today is the introduction to the idea. You must be aware that mental health has been deteriorating in the United States of America, uh, particularly over the period of time that, as you know, most interests me, and that is from uh, the 19, early 1960s, say 1960, to the present. Uh, a huge increase. The amount of money that is part of the health budget that goes on mental issues has become very high indeed. The number of people that you run into who are on uh, medication, various uh, drugs that are prescribed by psychiatrists and people in the mental health industry, um, I don't know the figure. I've heard the figure batted around. 
that between one in three and one in four people in the United States of America are, have been or are in a treatment for a mental disorder. Okay. Um, and again, I know it's important not to stigmatize, etc. All of those things, it goes without saying. But none of that should serve as a gag in order to uh, silence information that is important for you to be aware of. And so even though uh, this will be difficult to accept, uh, if you don't accept it, it's also fine, but at least you are aware that this is a different way of looking at it. It's different from what your doctor is going to say. It's different from what you're going to hear at the university course you're enrolled in. And uh, it's different from what you're going to read in your daily newspapers. Right now, I'm not going to go into the history, but I am going to show you an, an arguable trend. So whether you are uncomfortable or not with what I'm speaking about, what I'm about to show you now is unarguable. There is a book called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's called DSM. And it is the, the book, it's the guide of the mental health profession. And what it has become is also a very important book from a monetary point of view because reimbursements, uh, insurance, government payments for various mental disorders are all taken from this book. In other words, if your mental disorder is listed in this book, then yes, that's good, then you're officially... Uh, valid and, and you can be compensated. If not, then not. And all of this flows through the mental health industry, which has become over the last 60 years an ever larger proportion of the medical budget for the United States of America. <clears throat> so the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, was first published in 1952. Okay. And this was known as DSM-1. DSM-1, in 1952, uh, comprised 130 pages. And it listed 106 mental disorders. Time went by, and we came to 1968. In 1968, DSM-2 was published. In other words, they decided that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual was out of date, and they published a new one, DSM-2. This one was uh, only 134 pages. The first one was 130, now it's 134 by 1968, and the disorders rose to 182. Uh, they were... 36 years, excuse me, 16 years earlier, they were 106 disorders, and now it is 182 disorders. And then came 1980, and we come to DSM-3, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, third edition. Uh, we were at, at 130 pages, and then 134 pages, 1980, 494 pages! That's right. And how many disorders? 265. So uh, if you want to just, if you're interested and you just want to write these numbers down, um, you know, you can do a little uh, set of columns or a, or a table. 1952, DSM-1, 130 pages, 106 disorders. DSM-2, 1968, still fairly early in the deterioration. So 134 pages, 182 disorders. By 1980, we're in full-blown decline, 494 pages, 265 disorders. Comes 1994, 14 years later, and again, time for a new edition, DSM-4. 886 pages and 410 disorders. This obviously means something, and you have to think what this means. And then, finally, 2013 comes DSM-5, the fifth edition, 
947 pages and about 600 disorders. It's a little bit harder to count now because the uh, organization, the psychiatric organization that puts it out is becoming sensitive and aware of the criticism that it's growing and growing and growing. And so they made it very hard to count. And, uh, but roughly speaking, it seems about, uh, about 600 plus minus, a little bit more, a little bit less. But the best I could come up with was uh, 600 disorders. It might even be significantly more than that, but I tried to stay fairly conservative in my counting. Now, um, during the, this time from 1952 to 2013, when it went from 130 pages to 947 pages of disorders, and it went from 106 disorders to over 600 disorders. Uh, how, how does this happen? Well, what happens is that psychiatrists at their conventions vote on what should be listed as a disorder. That's right. So if you thought this was all about science, well, it's kind of a little bit more about democracy. If enough people think it's a disorder, it is, and if Okay, I'm not saying that there are better ways of doing it. You're in a very, very gray area here. But what's important is that there was an attempt in one of the earlier DSMs to list racism as a mental disorder. And it was narrowly voted down. Um, I do believe it's up for vote again. And um, I, I think we are on fairly safe ground if we... Um, make a prediction that racism will become a disorder. What this means is that you can be committed to a hospital if you are deemed to have racist tendencies. Does this begin to sound a little bit like the Soviet Union, where one of the punishments was to identify dissidents as being mentally ill and then sending them to confinement in a mental institution? Um, Here's another interesting thing. In one of the DSMs, <clears throat> homosexuality was considered a mental disorder. That's right. right. There's something wrong with you spiritually and mentally if you are if you're a man attracted to men, there's something wrong with you. And um, needless to say, uh, in the next DSM, they uh, voted that out, and so it is no longer a disorder. However, anybody who is uncomfortable with homosexuality suffers from a disorder, according to that new DSM, uh, a, uh, a disorder known as homophobia. And so uh, all of these things change, and why do more and more get added? Well, follow the money. That's why it's important to understand the F of finances. Uh, follow the money. And uh, the, um, the amount of money flowing to mental health practitioners has been climbing consistently from 1952 to 2030, or to the present, actually. Last figures I looked like were at were 2019. And the figures have been climbing in proportion to the climb in the number of pages in the DSM which makes perfect sense, obviously, because that is exactly how it works. And uh, what is, when I, when I said earlier, I didn't mean to cause you consternation or unhappiness in any way, but I do want to tell you the truth. And I also know that um, many of you will reject what I'm about to say, which is fine. Uh, but if you at least think about it, well, that would be good and uh, contemplate the possibilities of this. It is something that is so disturbing and so shocking and uh, undoubtedly will cause so much cognitive dissonance that uh, it's not something that anybody can easily absorb in just one hearing. And so I want to uh, today only introduce you to the notion, knowing that as a happy warrior, you will think about it as time goes by. Uh, mental health is uh, very much a spiritual factor. And um, it's also not an accident that 
there is more mental disorder in uh, big cities than in small rural areas. And in general, it would appear that there is more focus on mental disorder in uh, the areas of the United States that are more secularly oriented. Why? Well, what's this got to do with anything? Well, I'll tell you, and that is that the good Lord created human beings to have certain needs. We need oxygen, and we need food. We need our body temperature to be maintained. Uh, we need water to drink. And if you provide human beings with water and oxygen and food, they will pretty much survive physically. But will they survive mentally, emotionally, and spiritually? Not. Not at all. Because we have needs that are spiritual needs every bit as urgent as our needs for oxygen, food, and water. Some of those needs are connection with other human beings, friends, and family. We need that. It is not an accident that much of American policy today is being designed by people who are single and childless. It's not an accident. Being single and childless is not a healthy state of, of living in, his, in the same way that uh, eating dreadful food and drinking soda is not a healthy way to live physically. Living single and childless is not a healthy way to live mentally and spiritually. And so when you take a look at the, the most uh, identifiable demographic of the mentally disturbed, which are namely America's so-called homeless people, and um, you know, am I hobophobic? Am I fearful of homeless people? Am I fearful of vagrants? Am I fearful of hobos? Yeah, I am hobophobic, no question about it. Because there are people, there are many people, who have been attacked, assaulted, and murdered by homeless people who are plainly of, out of their minds, people who are mentally incapacitated. This is a reality. And, um, and again, the, the single most significant characteristic of homeless people in the United States of America, uh, apart from drug and alcohol usage, which I see as an effect rather than a cause, is that they are alone. They are disconnected from people. That's right. Homeless people are absolutely disconnected from family and from friends. And the friendships they make among themselves, as anybody who has spent any time at all in homeless encampments knows, um, <laughs> those friendships are, are sadly rather fragile, to say the least. Uh, yes, to be alone and disconnected is a very high risk factor for mental disorder. Sorry, but I have to tell you the reality. Um, a very large number of boys in gigs, a very large number of boys in schools are under the treatment of psychiatrists. A very high number of them are being treated with drugs like Adderall or Ritalin and there are several other brands as well. This is a big problem. It's a big problem because what gives them the symptoms that make the mental health industry drug them is the fault of the geeks in the first place. Because boys need to be doing more than sitting quietly at tables in non-competitive environments for eight hours a day. Anybody who knows anything at all about how to raise boys knows that boys need competitive environments, they need physical challenges, 
they need to be able to see themselves as having achieved real things, not necessarily exclusively in the academic arena, but if you rebuild boys in a secular fundamentalist image, the next thing you end up doing is putting them under psychiatric care. And so, yes, many of the boys who are in these situations could be cured instantly by being taken out of school and by being put to work on a farm. <laughs> this, is, this is the reality. And I, I said I know that there are many of you who are going to be uncomfortable with what I'm saying, and, and I get that, and I understand that. Um, I'm not saying everybody and exclusively. I'm not saying that every single person who is under psychiatric care um, is, is, uh, is, is easily cured by reintroduction to how the world really works. Um, I understand that there's uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. That's one of the newer items on the DSM. But I am introducing the notion that the destruction of traditional lifestyle has produced a consequence. And instead of trying to cure the problem, we're curing the symptoms with psychotropic drugs. When people take refuge in alcohol and drugs, they are taking refuge. They're taking refuge from terrible feelings and thoughts of loneliness and disconnectedness. And so uh, these ideas are, are shocking in today's times and understandably disturbing, but at least contemplate the possibility that what I'm telling you might just perhaps possibly be true in some, many, most, not all circumstances, and namely that what we call mental disorder and without question involves deep suffering is spiritual in nature and is the consequence of people living without essential things that are required, namely not just oxygen, food and water without which, yes, you'll get physically ill, but without the spiritual needs without which you get spiritually ill. And that is a proper relationship with friends, with family, and yes, with finances and faith as well. That's what I'm saying, that an understanding of the spiritual aspects of life are essential for remaining sane and normal. Shocking and disturbing, it really is, I get it. But nonetheless, something that I do believe is very important indeed. And that, my friends, is as far as we go on this edition of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And so all that remains is for me, your rabbi, to wish you a wonderful week of health, both physical and spiritual, as you progress and grow onwards and upwards in your faith, friendships, finances, fitness, and family.